0: Church, uh, welcome to our neighbors. I'm glad to be together with you uh, in the room or or, uh, online. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in. I wonder, and and I actually was having a conversation with Josh this morning, and he doesn't know that it tied right into what I wanted to talk about this morning. So um, I'm curious, I had the question this week as to whether the quality of our learning is directly proportionate to how entertaining the learning is. So if I am being entertained by by the thing that I am learning, the odds are that maybe the quality of that learning is not so great. Do you know what I mean when I say that? (laughs) The History Channel is by all means entertaining. Like I want, if you watch the inter, the History Channel, they they always know when to cut the things, so that you want to watch through the commercials, so that you got to come back and you're entertained by the thing that they're putting together. But maybe they haven't fact checked uh, so much of what they've done, and maybe they're willing to. Uh, For the sake of entertainment value, leave some facts, some hard facts on the floor so that we can present some more interesting facts. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you're uh, super nerdy and you go and you read like actual books in an actual library from actual people that were actually there, they call those firsthand sources, that work is actually really difficult to do. And the thing about doing that kind of work is as you look at people that were writing in the same time, oftentimes they weren't like writing together and they weren't trying to create a history. They were just looking at their lane and their life experience and writing about what they saw. So it comes to the job of the person who's doing the work of learning to read a couple of different things and then to piece together like what actually was happening in the world because I don't know about you but I only can see things from my perspective. That, is work, is not particularly entertaining, but the quality of learning by doing that exercise is probably more significant than the quality of learning that we got from watching the History Channel. Right? That's a real, I'm sorry, I've already lost you. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) Huh. Okay, sure, but, but watching, like, there's so many times where I'm talking with somebody and they're like, yeah, I watched a thing on TV about blah, 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 and then they pretend like they're an expert. Like, just because you read a blog on the internet doesn't mean that you have a PhD in the topic that you're trying to talk about, Like, Are we on that page? Can we do that? Okay, let's start, let's start there. Okay, I'm sorry, forget everything else I've already said. Stop, I'm, be- yeah. I'm begging you, please don't be bored. I don't want to be, bored. let me entertain you. Oh my gosh. Hey, just as a disclaimer this morning, some of the topics we're going to talk about are PG-13, so those of you in the back booth, like you can super pay attention, we might mention sex as we go along, so PG-13, like just as a heads up before we get there, I'm trying to get their attention, and they're just like locked in on the TV, so can't compete. (laughs) Man, wow, let's pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, It's our habit together to pray the disciples' prayer. And so I'd invite you to pray with me in your hearts. If you'd like to speak out loud, then, then you're more than welcome to as well. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever. Amen. We've been working together through a series called "What If Jesus Was Serious," taking apart uh, one of Jesus's uh, longest recorded sermons, and our our uh, so. If you have missed any of those conversations over the last couple of weeks or have been it for a couple of months now, then I, you can go back and, and check the website or the podcast or the YouTube channel and catch up on those. Um, but this morning, we're going to dive right into uh, a, a topic that I think cuts across a couple of different things and, and will cut really close to home. So um, before you get offended, I just ask you to hear me out to the end of our conversation. Um but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this. I wondered if I should probably, like, read it all together in one time and, like, rip the Band-Aid off or whether we should kind of go progressively through it. But I actually think it's going to be helpful for us to move verse by verse through this. So, so, uh, so track with me here. We're in Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 1011 in the Blue Bibles. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to begin uh, our discussion with verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I'm even going to pause right there. Like That's a very simple sentence, and there may have been a time where preachers did not feel obligated to, to, to give a long discourse about this verse in particular. And yet I think we find ourselves in a time where I do need to clarify like Jesus' Jesus's teaching and, and biblical teaching about it. So he's, he is making a commentary on the Ten Commandments, the, the Mosaic Law, and he's saying, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And by and large, everybody in his audience was on board with, yes that is a thing, like we should not commit adultery. However, I'm, I'm aware that there are themes uh, in our culture and there are voices in our culture that are encouraging us that that is not actually something that we ought to take seriously, that we're not all on the same page about what um, what we should be doing with our sexuality, with the... the um, proliferation of throuples and open marriages and things of that nature. Like, let me just clarify that we should not commit adultery. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Um, Biblical marriages uh, reflect the gambit of fallen humanity. Biblical marriages. Like, I get nervous, for me, and I'm a pastor, I get nervous when anybody comes at me and says, well, the biblical X, Y, Z, and you're like, why would that be? Well, because the Bible does not shy away from our, our brokenness. And the Bible oftentimes will describe something that people did as clearly as it possibly can without either without necessarily endorsing the thing that they did. So you can find examples of, biblical, of marriages in the Bible that did not honor God at all. Um, uh, so you've got incest, you've got descriptions of incest, you've got descriptions of um, rape, you've got descriptions of polygamy. All of these things are described in the Bible. And so there are people in the culture who be like, well, biblical marriage looks like... Blah, 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 and they're saying a bunch of crazy stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, they weren't advocating for those models of marriage. The, the model that God designs, uh, or God, the model that God has designed for marriage... Uh, and I wrote this down, is an intimate covenant between a husband, a wife, and God. Our marriages are not just between the two people that enter into the covenant. It's also a covenant before God. It's something that he does spiritually between us. So God's design for marriage is an intimate covenant between a husband, a wife, and God. Yes, I have used gender-exclusive descriptive words in that, and yes, that is purposeful. So I'm trying to be as clear as I can just so that we're all on the same page. And if you, like, I have, there are so many people that want to push back against that. Fine, you're not talking to me. You're talking to how God lined things out. And if it's a husband and wife and God, if a marriage covenant is between a husband, a wife, and God, then you should not commit adultery. You should not go outside of the bounds of marriage for sexual fulfillment. Now, hear me me clearly when I say this. Sex is not bad. It was God's idea. Like, like think about that for a minute. Like, God thought of sex. It came from his creative mind. It is a good gift that he gave us. But in the same way that you want fire in your fireplace and not on your curtains it has a place and a role in our lives. So as God designed sex and as he thought about the mechanics of how it would work best, he wanted it to work in a trusting and intimate and committed relationship so that it could reach its best fulfillment. Like, you want want your house to be warm in the winter, but you want the fire in the fireplace and not on the curtains. We get into trouble when we try to take things outside of the place they were designed to be and just use them however we want to use them. So sex isn't bad as God's design, but it's designed for intimacy within a marriage. So what? Like, okay, cool. Um, I get it. There, there's there's one other caveat. Like at this very like I know we've already dived like dive really really deep here. But why why would I care so much about this? There's a small passage in Ephesians chapter five. If you're not familiar with it, I would just point your attention uh, as homework this week. There's a small section of scripture in Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty five through thirty three, where the author says that marriage, the marriage covenant relationship, the husband, wife, and God relationship is a picture of our salvation. And if it's a picture of our salvation, then what we say is essential to marriage must also be true of our salvation. So, if we want to have confidence to say that when we make a commitment and a covenant and enter into a covenant with Jesus that he forgives our sins and that we then can live free because of that covenant relationship then for us to turn around and say well in marriage the covenant relationship is not so valuable is to say that any one of the parties could leave any one of the parties of our salvation could leave at will and theologically, that's not a statement that I can make, because God says that I have my children, they're in my hand, and no one will take them out. That which I have brought together between my son saving them like, is not going to be broken apart. And so what we say about marriage has implications for our salvation and whether or not we can actually be reconciled to God in any meaningful way. So, I'm not just, one, I'm, I'm just following along the text with, like, I'm, I want to preach Jesus' sermon, and this is what he said. This is his point. But also, like, I think it's important because it matters for us, not only relationally, not only because there's a lot of hurt that's caused in the world, but also salvifically. It matters for our salvation. There's a theological truth embedded in marriage. Now, does that mean that everybody has to be married? No. Like, God, you can be created in the image of God and live a full and honorable life to, um, and not be married. In fact, there are some of us that are given that, uh, that gift. God calls it a gift to not be married and have to be concerned about your spouse, to not be married and not have to be concerned about uh, keeping your kids from lighting the curtains on fire or whatever it is. Like, that is a gift that some of us are entrusted with, and some of us are entrusted with the gift of, of, of marriage. Like, it, it is a thing. So, um, just at the outset... I'd I'd just like to ask us, are we trying to think God's thoughts about our relationships? Are we thinking God's thoughts about relationships? Or are we just kind of taking our experiences and trying to interpret what God says through our experiences? My encouragement for us this morning is that we we not be so uh, educated by the culture and the things that are acceptable today, but that we try to think God's thoughts about how he designed things to work. And then we'll be on a better footing to engage with him and to love our neighbors well. Are we thinking God's thoughts about our relationships? If our thoughts about marriage... Uh, what if our thoughts about marriage don't match God? So what if you're like, yeah, I don't think adultery is that big of a deal or open marriages are fine. Like, okay, let's, let's go a little bit deeper. All right, so you, let's start at 27 again. We'll, we'll add another verse onto this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, He says, you think it's what you do in your bed is what counts. I'm saying that what you do behind your eyeballs matters to God just as much. You think that whether, like, you think that if you actually cross that line into touching one another, then you have committed the sin. But I'm saying, if you even are considering what it would be like to possibly do that, then you've crossed the line. Now, let me say this, because if you Google this, like there are all different kinds of ways that people try to get off of Jesus' words. And so let me just tell you, adultery, adultery, like legally, the legal definition of adultery is intercourse with someone else's wife. She has to be married in order for it to be considered specifically the word adultery. Um, That's a consistent definition. Every time the Bible uses adultery, that's what it's talking about. So if she's single, you're off the hook, right? Well, well, no, there are all other there are other words to describe the other things. And I and I think if you're like, if you're making an argument for like, well, she wasn't actually married to anybody else, so it wasn't, so I didn't cross any lines. Like I think you're you're missing Jesus' point. And Jesus' point is that the line between temptation and sin runs right through the middle of our heart. The line between temptation and sin runs right through the middle of our heart. And I am more and more convinced that only God knows when I've crossed it. I can can do all kinds of mental gymnastics to convince myself that the thing that I want to do is the right thing to do. But the line between temptation, which is not a sin to be tempted, and sin, which is a violation of uh, what God wants for us, the line between those two things runs through the middle of my heart. It's not something that ever has to get outside of my mind. And so, if, if we're playing uh, legal definition games to try to figure out how to get off of the hook with the people that we want to sleep with, then, then, then you've missed the point that he's making here. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the issue with lust is that uh, it objectifies its um, target. Lust objectifies its target. What, what, what do you mean? Okay, so I've already, even in the announcements, I tried to, to play this, like, like, we are created in the image of God. Like, we are made to be like him. And there is an inherent dignity that each of us has as a human being created in the image of God. But when we lust after somebody, we take them from being a human created in the image of God to being an object that I can use to please myself. Lust objectifies its target. It goes from having a conversation with her to I got to have it. We depersonalize and we objectify in our heart, and it's all for uh, we all and it's all for a, a selfish reason, a self-serving reason. Uh, James, uh, I used this last week, but I keep coming back to it. James chapter 3, he talks about with the same mouth we bless God, but we also curse his image. With the same mouth we might offer praise to God, uh, or with the same heart we might offer praise to God in a song on Sunday morning, but in our heart objectify a person created in his image and make them less than and make them subservient to my needs or my desires. Um, And I think, I suspect... That one of the issues with our culture today, and one of the one of their issues one of the reasons why we have such a difficult time talking about this, is because we confuse entertainment with intimacy. That God's design for marriage is an intimate covenant, intimate covenant between a husband, wife and God, but we confuse entertainment with intimacy. And this happens uh, in a number of different ways. The the picture gets distorted in a number of different ways. There's there's a media comparison trap that I think we're all uh, susceptible to. Um, Whether we're talking about social media and people are only talking about what's good in their lives or they're only taking the best selfies and posting those or they're taking selfies and doctoring themselves so they look like a supermodel. Um, I was talking with somebody who was talking about they had seen a a photo and the, the whole point of the photo was they wanted to show the powers of Photoshop and so it was a picture of like a really attractive girl in a bikini. And they, So they started with the end picture of the Photoshop, and then they uh, recorded as they undid all of the Photoshops that they did. So they'd get undo, 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 undo. And the original image they started with was a dude with, like, a beer belly sitting there, like, with it. With like, so, like, they can do a lot of things with Photoshop. There's, there, are, there is a... a uh, a danger of seeing things on social media that have been doctored and assuming like, that's the standard that I need to get my life to. We begin to uh, compare. And it doesn't just happen on social media, like advertising is built upon this. Like every advertisement you've ever seen is trying to convince you that you are not enough and that you need to have this object, this, this thing, in order to fulfill yourself. Like, every message you've ever gotten from an advertiser has been trying to convince you that you are less than human, and that this thing is going to make you better, right? Um, and, and it happens in movies and television shows as well. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're adults here, and statistically, I would be really, really... Um, it would be unfair for me to have this conversation and not talk about the dangers of pornography as well, which is, which is the ultimate form of entertainment, devoid of intimacy, that convinces us that we are being intimate. It's all thrill with no commitment. And it rewires our brains in such a way that we have devalued uh, people to where they are just objects completely for our entertainment. Well, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not in bed with any of these people. Like, I'm not actually doing any sin. Yes, yes, but your consumption of it drives the engine that does, makes the demand for them to exist, which means those people are sending amongst themselves to be recorded for you to enjoy. Statistically, the average age that a, a young boy is exposed to pornography in America is eight years old. Statistically, the average girl is exposed to pornography at 11. And we have this strange double standard in our head where if I, as, as a male, as a grown man, were to go to an 8-year-old boy or an 11-year-old girl and were to take them into a room where people were, were doing explicit things, I would be arrested and any kids that I had would be taken away from me and I'd be put on a list and marked forever. But if we put it on a cell phone, we're, we've, we, we excuse the responsibility for the, the child abuse that's occurred. And we look at a, a generation of young people who are confused sexually and we go, I don't understand, but we have given them these tools to engage with this material and have, and have not questioned what they're being educated by. The quality of our education is determined by how entertaining it is, and I'd say pornography is probably at the top of the entertainment list. They don't have any problem selling that. But what's the education value? What does it teach us about actually valuing other humans? What does it teach us about what an actual intimate relationship among adults looks like? Married adults. None. By embracing these false expectations, we ultimately handicap ourselves for real intimacy. If you eat sugar all the time, steak tastes bad. By embracing false expectations, we ultimately handicap real intimacy. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how to bring this into the conversation other than do we consider our thought patterns may be as dangerous as our actual actions? Do we consider that our thoughts and the ways that we think might actually be as dangerous as our actual actions towards other people? Jesus Jesus is pointing that the line between temptation and sin runs right through the middle of our heart. And we've got to take that seriously. For our big idea this morning, I've gotten lost in my PowerPoint, our big idea this morning is that in God's kingdom, our character counts more than our contributions. In God's kingdom, our character counts more than our contributions. Who we are as people, what comes out of us when we are tested as people, counts more than what we might contribute in our lives. What we might add or bring to the table. Our character, who we are, counts more than our contributions. You're like, Mike, I don't, I don't get where you're getting that from. I thought we were talking about sex. Like what, wh- where are you coming from? Let's, let's read a couple more verses verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's that's Jesus' application of the principle. So anybody else like, feel like we we know what we're supposed to do when we leave here today? Okay, no, no, no. Like let's let's take this. I wanna, I wanna, I don't want to, I don't want to do a mental gymnastics to get us off the hook of taking seriously the exhortations that Jesus is giving to us. I want us to ask the question: what if Jesus is serious? But when we look at something like this, we're like, this guy's a religious nut. He's an extremist. He belongs on a list somewhere in the CIA's database. What do you mean, cut off my right hand? What do you mean, gouge out my eye? Like, that's, that's crazy talk. Like, you, you have lost your mind. <clears throat> what if he was serious? There's a couple of things that I'd like for us to consider um, as, as we live in this tension of, like, is, is that really what he means? Is that? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have a lot of people uh, that are mutilated. Okay. But let's, let us look, let's, let's, let's pause in this tension and just point out a couple of things. Responsibility is placed on the person who is lusting to make a different choice. Responsibility is placed on the person who is lusting to make a different choice. He doesn't say if you look at a different woman with lust in your intent, that you should make sure that you tell her husband to put more clothes on. Responsibility is placed on the person who is lusting to make different choices. The problem is in you. Now, I'm an advocate for modesty, but this is not the verse that I'm going to come at it from. Guys have to take responsibility for the things that are going on in their head. Women, too, have to take responsibility for the things that are going on in their head. And we cannot solve the problem by making other people do something differently. It has to start here. Responsibility is placed on the luster, the person who is lusting, to make a different choices. Eyes, sure, I get it. Like, I look and I see and, like, scoop out the eye. Like, that makes sense. What what do you mean my hand? My hand causes me to sin. Is Jesus making a reference to masturbation? Like, is that really what's happening right here? If we embrace false expectations, we ultimately handicap our ability for real intimacy. Following Jesus will only cost us the things that will kill us. We look look and we go, okay, like, that's a cost, Jesus. I need to see, I need to work. But following Jesus will only cost us the things that are ultimately going to kill us. When we talk about pornography or other kind of sex addictions, we're like, I can't, I can't escape this. Like, This is optional. You pay money to carry this in your pocket. Following Jesus only costs us the things that will ultimately kill us. If this is a problem... don't tell Verizon I said that, because they'll come after me. We don't need all of the toys that we think we need. We don't need to be connected to every depraved form of entertainment that there is. We can cancel the descriptions, the subscriptions. We can cancel the subscriptions. I can talk. We don't have to have them. We don't have to be around the people that are going to continue to encourage us that the things that Jesus says are going to kill us aren't that big of a deal. Following Jesus only costs us the things that are ultimately going to kill us because he says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. We choose often what we're going to consume, media-wise, friendship-wise, How might we save ourselves trouble by limiting our diets? Put diets in air quotes. We made some different choices about the kind of things that we're going to consume. How might we save trouble by limiting our diet? And just saying, you know what? Those movies are not actually helpful to me. I'm done. You know what? I don't actually need to be excessive. And don't actually need 100% accessibility to all the material that's happening in the world. You know, used to be that if something happened, like, you wouldn't hear about it until the next day. And the world went on. You didn't need to know what was happening in real time. We actually, I don't think, we're designed to be able to get access to the headlines as soon as they're happening. It may not be good for our health to be as connected as we are. Let me just say that and it may not be good for our soul. Okay, so gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. The original, I think the original audience as they heard this uh, would have understood something differently than I think that we take for granted. One, we're like, okay, if I lose a limb, I can go down to the hospital and they will sterilize it and cauterize it and then maybe I can get a prosthetic down the line. Like we, our interaction with... Um, with mutilation is different from them. They're like, if I cut off my hand, like I might get an infection and that could just kill me. Like if I lose an eye, I could die from infection. Like that was a real thing and that was way more common for them than it is for us sitting here in America. Uh, We have emergency rooms. They had the uncle with the strong bottle of whatever in the cabinet, right? So, when he was saying to these people, like they were taking their lives in their hands as they did it. And they also were causing themselves, at least for a season, but probably for the rest of their lives, to be dependent upon other people to make ends meet. If I cut off my right hand, and I'm a farmer, how am I going to swing the sickle? Our character counts more than our contributions, and none of us wants to put ourselves in a situation where we have to ask somebody else for help, but Jesus is saying, if you hide it in the darkness, it will kill you, and if we bring it out to the light, and we ask another person to bear the burden with us, then perhaps, perhaps we might have abundant life. In God's kingdom, our character counts more than our contributions. It is better to be physically handicapped than emotionally and spiritually handicapped. It is better to not know what the news is than for your heart to be so caught up in uh, all the pornography that you've that you cannot have a relationship and cannot speak to a person of the opposite gender. Teenagers, don't learn those forms of communication, they will only lead to death. And I say that as somebody who also grew up in a time where it was readily accessible. I don't think I could survive the access that they had. Like when when I was a teenager, like I had to do work to go find naughty material. Like dial-up internet was a real inhibitor. And there was only one computer and it was in the living room. Like there, there was some risk involved with access. But our our students, gosh, please pray for our students because they carry this with them all day long and they have notifications. And even when they open the apps that they try to use to communicate with their friends, there are other ads that are being served to them all the time because everybody knows if I can get them hooked now, then I've got 50 years that I can milk them for all that they're worth. Better to be physically handicapped, socially handicapped, not have access to the social media channels, than to be emotionally and spiritually handicapped. Physical mutilation also doesn't solve the problem. Does it? If the line between temptation and sin runs through my heart, then you can cut out both of my eyes and I can remember every picture I've ever seen. I don't have to go get more material. I have given myself more than I need. And physical mutilation doesn't solve the problem. Jesus has always been the answer to our problem. From the beginning, he always has. And consider with me this, students, men, women, consider with me this. Jesus says, just a couple of verses ago, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here is a grown man, full of testosterone, surrounded by women who wanted to touch his clothes, who walked through life, fulfilled the law, and never looked lustfully at a woman. Did it. Fulfilled the law. There's nobody in this room who can make that claim. And yet Jesus stands among us and says, I have fulfilled it. That's the kind of dude I want to be next to. That's somebody who I want, like, their character to rub off on me. That's somebody I want to follow. That's somebody I want to know more. Jesus has always been the solution to our problem, and he transforms the chemistry of our soul as a sign of his plan to restore the whole world. It will not always be this way. I don't think it's presumptuous for me to say that we're all guilty. But the only confidence I have to say that we're all guilty is that we all are invited to cling to Jesus. Well, we trust Jesus, our perfect savior, completely. Sure, Mike, I get it. Like, that's, I, I feel inspired. Can you, can you, I'm struggling with this. I don't know, I don't know how to approach it. I don't, I don't know how to have victory over this. Um, there's a, let me just give you, before we close, let me just give you a, a, a thing. Um, this is a small book. It's called Every Moment Holy. And uh, it's fascinating. I've been reading it uh, off and on for a couple of weeks. And it's just, it's just interesting. So what it is, is actually a collection of prayers but it's not the kind of prayers that you'd find in church in the sense that there are prayers for, like, normal life. There's a prayer for when the power goes out. Use that one this week. There's a prayer for um, laundering clothes. There's a prayer for doing yard work. So the book is just trying to take the normal, everyday components of life and say, hey, God is in these moments, too if we'll just interact with him. And they've got a section in there uh, called uh, Liturgies of the Moment. Liturgy is just a fancy word for church prayer. Liturgies of the Moment, and they're really short, and they're designed to be memorized so that when those moments come, you have a different uh, set of thoughts to think than the ones that you're already used to. So, uh, this is not me, this is, I'm, he didn't put it. McKelvey is the guy who wrote it. Um, he, he, said, he writes this, a momentary liturgy upon seeing a beautiful person. Like, who would, this is not a conversation we'd normally have in church. We wouldn't talk about pretty people in church, would we? And yet, it's in the book. So, a momentary liturgy, a small prayer to say upon seeing a beautiful woman, or a beautiful person. Person, sorry, excuse me. Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. Two sentences. You're like, Mike, what's that going to do? If you're in a rut, every time you have a trigger, you fall down in the rut and you keep going down the same path. This is just a different thought pattern. Memorize this so that when the triggers come, you've got, you've got another way to direct your thoughts. When I fall into a lustful thought, I'm not like thinking about God as their creator. And yet this small couple of sentences brings to mind that every person is created in the image of God and has an inherent dignity that cannot be violated. And perhaps I'll be less likely to objectify those persons. Why? Because in God's kingdom, our character counts more than our contributions. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. There are so many things that are common uh, that we are embarrassed and don't want to talk about. And I thank you that in your wisdom, you just say things. That you're not afraid to describe depravity. Describe the world that is broken that we have to live in. God, I thank you that we don't have to pretend that these things don't exist. And yet, as we come again to your standard and we see, again, that it's even greater standard than we thought. Like, we, we maybe could have not committed adultery, but, but not to lust in our heart like that, we are, we're hopeless. And so we turn to you. We fall on you and we cling to you. The, the good news that you have paid in full every sin that we have committed, every time that we have neglected to do good, and every corrupted thought which would devalue People made in your image. Would you give us a new way? Would you change the chemistry of our soul, God? We come and we and we trust you as the only one who can give us a hope for the future and the only one who can restore what was broken between us and between you. And so we cling to our Savior. We give praise for the mercy that you are showing to us and we, we beg for the grace to continue to follow you one step at a time. Lord Jesus, as we, as we walk in your way, would we not be puffed up and think that we can do it in our own power? But would you remind us always of our need for you? And remind us always that you have supplied everything that we need. To live the good life. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.